welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runcie. Our guest today is the CEO of Mass Appeal, Peter Bittenbender. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here. How you doing? I'm good. It's definitely a trying time, though, to say the least. And for you, you're leading a hip-hop entertainment company in this moment, this uprising, cultural unrest, especially targeted at the Black community. What's that experience been like for you? Yeah, it's definitely a, a crazy time in this world of ours. I feel like for anybody, whether you're running a business or not, there's a lot to think about, a lot to reflect on. For us at Mass Appeal, you know, as a company that lives and breathes black, brown culture, we've had a lot of internal dialogues. You know, first and foremost, just checking on our staff, making sure that everybody feels supported, making sure that we're taking care of our team, just having the, the hard but incredibly important conversations from how we operate, the things that are important to us as a business moving forward, acknowledging some of the mistakes we've made in the past. But really, it's been most about our team right now because we have a lot of ambitions of things that we hope to be able to do in the world. But unless our team is really in a good place, we can't activate a lot of the change that we intend to try and do. So, you know, Mass Appeal is lucky to have a lot of different resources. The goal is we're going to go out into the world and put those resources to work and try and help organizations and work on behalf of causes that are passionate and, you know, align with our ideals. So it's a much needed moment. That's how I'll say it. This country of ours, the world that we live in, has needed a reckoning at this level for quite some time. It's happened historically, but I feel positive that this is a different moment. I was speaking to Killer Mike and we were just saying that like, as fucked up as everything feels, you know, coming out of COVID and then having all the social and just the injustice around these murders, you know, it does feel like there actually is going to be some change. I don't know. So yeah, that's where we're at. And, you know, the goal is we're going to try and start dedicating. We're, we're looking to hire somebody to come on board the business who can help us with community initiatives, could serve as kind of an HR slash community resource. And the goal is that you know, we're going to dedicate a certain amount of our business, kind of looking at like the Google 80-20 model, trying to take 20% of our time and apply it to projects and causes that we feel can be impactful. So that's where we're at. But yeah, it's a lot. And I hope better days are ahead. Has any of this shifted the type of content or the type of projects that you want to put out or that you want to focus on in the future? Yes, it's had a little bit of a shift, but because we're a business that fortunately has already been in the trenches doing work and putting out movies like, you know, Sasha did a movie three years ago called Burn Motherfucker Burn about the LA riots, which unfortunately now the movie is even more current than it was when it came out a few years ago. But that's just one of numerous projects. We, we did a project with Ancestry and Sundance called Railroad Ties, tracing the lineage of different people with the Underground Railroad that won all types of awards. So you know, when you look at the business of Mass Appeal for people who don't quite understand how we're set up, there's three different divisions. So we have our content arm, which Sasha really runs and, and has a very defined vision for what that should look like and has been very successful in executing that. And we have a lot more projects to follow. So in that business, no, there hasn't really been too much of a change because of the kind of current conditions of the country, because the work we were doing prior to this was the type of work that we're going to continue to do. We're probably going to do it with even more conviction at this point because the stories are even more important. On the record label, again, you know, you have Nas at the tip of the spear when it comes to the label. So we're going to continue to look for artists that we believe in, that have a message, and that can 
look to Mass Appeal as a platform that can help extend that message. On the brand side, however, there are some pretty big changes that we're, we're discussing. We have a great roster of clients, whether it's Google or, or Netflix or Showtime or you, know, you name it. We're lucky to work with cool brands who are doing work that we're passionate about. But because it's a service business, you don't always have as much say. It's not like a movie where you're like, oh, do I want to make that movie or not? It's like you get an RFP from a brand and you're competing a bunch of other agencies and it's a cool project, but you're not really thinking as much about like, okay, well, what is the bigger business practices of this company or what are things that they've done? Do we align with all of the approaches they've taken on other projects or other things they've invested in? How diverse are they? What is their commitment to the culture really? Is it just them dipping their toe in the pond to look cool or are they really, really going to be here and and do work and and give back in a meaningful way? Yeah, that makes sense. And I feel like that part is at an interesting potential pivot now because most of those brands that you've partnered with or could have been potential partners have probably put out some type of statement in the past few weeks, whether it's something regarding Black Lives Matter, whether it's announcing that Juneteenth is a corporate holiday, it's running the gamut, right? So the good thing is that it's raising awareness, but I think people want to see that these statements or these donations lead to action, lead to empowerment of the same culture that they're trying to get better integrated with. So the fact that you all are going to hold them accountable as business partners is good to hear. Yeah, we're going to start holding our brand partners completely accountable. And if they don't invest in diverse vendors, if they don't really make a longstanding, deep commitment to hip hop culture and to sort of youth culture and all the stuff that we're passionate and more focused on, then they're not going to be the type of brands and, and partners that we want to continue to have. And those will be tough conversations, but hopefully those conversations will be far and few between because most of the partners we work with, I think, are smart enough to realize that anything we're going to tell them to do, we're telling them because it's the right thing for their business. And it's not like we're telling them this because we're on our high horse and we think they're better than them. It's just the world has changed and you need to change accordingly. Agreed. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting to see how this shift is looked at, not just a year from now, but 10 years from now, when we're able to look in retrospect and see what this whole movement has been about. It makes me take a step back because I do think that there has been a broader shift in how the media landscape and how the entertainment landscape has shifted this past decade. And thinking back to you all as a business, the Mass Appeal brand was revived in 2013. That's around the time that you had came back in. Looking at that from a time perspective, I often think that 2013, 14, 15 time period was such a big shift in terms of how social media evolved, how streaming evolved, and how that changed so much. How has that been growing and building a business as so much is changing in that landscape in that time frame? It's been interesting because the digital media bubble burst in the last couple of years. You know, these companies were growth, 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 build audience, build eyeballs. Don't think about the bottom line, just think about scale. We never really had that same type of MO, that same kind of directive from how we've been building Mass Appeal. We were a little late. You know, Mass Appeal, again, started as a print magazine in 1996. I was just a kid at NYU reading it, obsessed with, you know, everything that was going on in pages of Mass Appeal, whether it was the street art, you know, graffiti, hip hop. But in 2013, when when uh, we kind of revived the brand because it had been dormant for a few years as just a magazine, the digital footprint that a lot of the competitors have built was much larger than ours. So we didn't 
spend a ton of time, like let's try and build this massive audience because A, it's super capital intensive and we definitely weren't prophetic. It's not like we knew that there'd be this shift where Facebook and Google would kind of gobble up all the traffic and and people would have less value as as a standalone publisher and it would really sort of change that power dynamic. But yeah, we were always just about stories. We were always about like, let's do the most premium approach to content. Let's work with our artists in the most premium forward thinking, innovative of ways. And that's always kind of what's driven the business. So we never had to quote unquote fall into like a trend or, you know, kind of shoot for these unrealistic traffic goals or some of the things that these companies that have now floundered had to deal with. Yeah. You never had to, or rather you bypassed a bit of the putting everything into Facebook when everyone was doing that. And then boom, Facebook changes the platform. Then all those companies are screwed, right? Not falling into that. Of course, it has benefits in terms of not needing to follow that trap, but then you also were able to see it from the outside and then also realize at the same time the cons that can come from all of those companies investing so much in one platform and how that can be challenging to building an overall company and overall brand. And I think that because things were shifting so quickly, those platforms that were built on just got seen as the main drive. Like, yes, our company sits on Facebook, or you even see a little bit of this now, like, oh, our company is a newsletter. But I do think that the brands and the companies that are able to think broader than that and aren't married to one medium, whether they own it or not, are the ones that are built for the long haul. We've always approached it as sort of the brand first. Like, what is Mass Appeal doing? What do people look to us for? You know, we haven't ever had the capital of some of these larger companies. So I'm envious of, oh, wow, what would it be like to have a $50 million round or $100 million? What could we do with our approach? We've always sort of bootstrapped it. And, you know, there's pros and cons to the approach that we've had and other people have had. But, you know, there was this great equalizer long before COVID in the digital media landscape. And we're glad that that moment didn't have the type of impact on our business. Obviously, it had an impact because we're part of that sector but not the same as a lot of people who kind of lost their businesses basically or lost the value of the businesses very quickly with that change in perception. Were there any moments back then when you were the most frustrated or that you were like, oh, if only we had that $50 million round, if only we had that $100 million round, was there a particular year or timeframe you look back on that you felt the most envious of those companies that had that much capital? See, it's interesting. So when we launched Mass Appeal in 2013 or we launched it, we raised a very, very small seed round. And then we went out and did like a friends and family kind of million dollar. Part of that money went towards acquiring the asset from the previous mass bill owner. Part of it obviously went to operations, but that money really took us until 2017, which is when we did our series A. And in between that time, I watched a lot of companies raise a lot of money. And I definitely would look at it like, damn, that would be nice. But we kind of had our head down. We were trying to figure out what Mass Appeal 2.0 was going to become. Because at that point, we still had my previous company, Decon, running inside of Mass Appeal. So we were kind of like this hodgepodge of my existing business and Mass Appeal. And we hadn't fully wound down Decon until really 2018. So we were still in to figure out our exact identity in terms of where we wanted to be. But it's hard to see the press releases come out and be like, damn, what are they doing? But right, right, right. we just stay true. And, you know, we're here and some of those companies aren't and some of them are. But, yeah, I've always appreciated people who can do more with less. So that's how we've been built. That's how 
I've always known, you know, we've always known how to do it. So, yeah, one of the big trade-offs with ownership and with bootstrapping more broadly is knowing that there's particular paths that you could go down, but then needing to convince both yourself and the team, like, no, we're not doing that. We know we could do it. We could be successful, but we need to focus here. Was there a particular business opportunity, venture, or area to focus on that you turned down for that reason? Yeah. I mean, you know, back to the building of the audience, there was definitely times where we had conversations with investors and whether the valuation wasn't right or whether the terms didn't make sense, the cultural fit wasn't there. There was definitely times where there was money in front of us, but it was focused on building audience. You know, it was pre the bubble bursting in digital media. And it was, you know, while we were talking about our series A, you know, we ended up getting money from a company that had different strategic value than just audience. They saw us as a strategic creative partner, but we were talking to a lot of companies and the biggest frustration was we know you guys could build an audience, but you haven't built, you mean, we have an audience, of course, a massive build, but it's not substantial enough where people would value us on those types of multiples. So there was a point where we had this sort of fork in the road, like, do we take money from one of these types of companies? And then our mission is going to be growing audience and we're going to get sucked into this traffic vortex of, we got to keep churning out articles. We got to keep churning out social posts. We really have to like hit these traffic and social media targets Luckily, we didn't end up taking money from the companies that prioritize that. And we ended up taking money from a group of investors with Universal Music leading it and and Evolution and people that, you know, they weren't like, don't do audience, but don't make that all you do. They gave us the optionality to kind of focus on the other things that we were really good at. That's good. That makes sense. That's a common thread. I think that a lot of folks in media can relate to. Yeah, because when I talk to my peers in this space and the people that are larger than us too, it's knowing that content, of course, gets revenue, gets more growth, but being able to nail down and know what to say yes to and say no to is key, definitely there. But I do think that one of the benefits of you all taking this route is the fact that you've been able to put out quality projects that do make an impact. I think two of the ones that stick out for me most specifically is, of course, last year's documentary series of Mikes and Men on Wu-Tang and even that first episode, it makes me think back to the beginning of this conversation. We're talking about the realities that Black people in this country grew up in. And I think that first episode does a great job of showing that reality for Wu-Tang and each of those artists individually. And then secondly, another one is that Freaknik podcast that you all did. And it's funny because I think like for people in my generation, Freaknik was always the thing that I was a couple years too young to be able to go experience it myself, but from the people that we often heard from, the stories were ridiculous, both from a, that seems like a fun experience, but also that seems like a very problematic experience as well. So I do think that being able to hit the nuance that sits with a lot of these stories is a powerful thing to do. And I think that can easily get lost in the mix with some other outlets or players that are more so putting out content and things without necessarily taking the moment to pause and think about its impact or think about what the story is necessarily trying to say. Yeah, that's a daily conversation in the office. Do we spend this extra money? Do we spend this extra resource time? to make it this much better? And the answer is 
always yes. You know, sometimes it takes a debate to figure out where the best resources are going to be put because, you know, we as a small company have only so much that we can do from a bandwidth standpoint. We're not making short form video that is going to be watched one day and then gone the next. Like our whole business is built on making long term IP, IP that will resonate. The great thing about Wu-Tang, and I love that you watched it and, you know, got something out of it, enjoyed it is people will be watching that documentary in 25 years from now. I have zero doubt about it because they'll be listening to Wu-Tang in 25 years from now. And that documentary, in my opinion, is one of the best music docs ever made. But more importantly, it's really balanced. We didn't do a puff piece on them. You know, Sasha really got a lot of trust from RZA. He said this in the press previously, and he said, you know, maybe looking back, RZA wouldn't have given me all the, you know, all the freedom that he gave me. They didn't see the documentary until it premiered at Sundance. There was this really awkward moment. You know, we premiered the first two episodes. It's a four-part series, if you guys haven't seen it. But we premiered the first two episodes at Sundance last January. And, of course, all of Wu-Tang was there. We had a huge after-party. And Sasha got up to do the Q&A. And the first thing he did was he pointed to the row where all of Wu-Tang was sitting. And everybody was clapping and got a great reaction from the crowd. He said, listen, it's great that everybody here loves this. But all I care about is that one row. Wu-Tang, tell me we did good. Tell me you're proud. Because <laughs> at that point, I mean... We knew we did a great job, but there's moments where they're very vulnerable. There's moments where they show some of the reasons that Wu-Tang didn't continue to be the group that they were in the 90s. Like they obviously had their moments where things were stronger than other times, but um, they loved it. And that was a really proud moment for all of us because we didn't have to like sort of compromise our integrity making the project, but we did in a way where they're still, they love it. I talked to Ghostface and Ray and all these guys and they're like, motherfucker, you made the most raw epic portrait of Wu-Tang ever. So that's good. I wish we could have made more money on the project and I wish it would have uh, been a bigger success internationally. That's been one of the, the disappointments, but we learn as we make these things like, what do you think you could have done, done differently? So we have an incredible relationship with Showtime. Vinny Malholtra there was working at CNN previously gave us our first opportunity. We did a film called fresh dressed. It was the first film the Masco made about the intersection of hip hop and fashion really great documentary that you can watch on CNN or rent anywhere. He then went to Showtime and immediately we started working. We did Burn Motherfucker Burn. We did this doc about hip hop's greatest lyricist called Word is Bond. And when it came time to take Wu-Tang to Sundance, he just made a preemptive offer that was really great. And we took it because Vinny, we knew he was going to give us the right marketing. He was going to give us the right looks. He was going to treat the project from a promotion standpoint as we treated it from a production and development standpoint. And that was very important. This project got the level of, you know, Emmy campaigns and Peabody's. We wanted this thing to become a critical success, but um, we didn't coordinate the international strategy as well. The sales strategy there, I didn't realize the cycle, how long it takes to sell stuff internationally to get it on air. There's still numerous markets around the world where Wu-Tang hasn't even been aired. So again, a learning, the content will make it to these markets. It will obviously be impactful in all these territories, but um, it wasn't as cohesive sort of launch as we had hoped it would have been. It's not like we went with the Netflix, you know, one of these platforms that's global and it just hits every territory at the same time. We split it up and there's pros and cons. You know, we got really great focused attention on the US and North America release, but um, we still have fans around the world who hit us up on social media all the time. Like, when's Wu-Tang? When's up Mike's and Men going to be available in Switzerland or Australia or, you know, whatever country. But again, we're working on so many different documentaries right now. 
we know for the future ones, we have to be more cognizant of that global release strategy because hip hop is a global culture. And, you know, we just have to learn for the next one. Yeah. Distribution really is key with so much of this. And like you said, Netflix is almost ubiquitous everywhere. And I think the more projects, especially hip hop projects that we've seen come out on Netflix, it isn't even a difference of quality. It's just whether it's on Netflix versus if it's on Amazon, is it on Hulu, Showtime, HBO, that becomes the more predominant factor in how much it gets talked about, how much it captures the zeitgeist even more so than the quality. With that said, I think the hardcore fans that have access will find access regardless. But I do think that's been one of the stronger themes, especially these past couple of years with more and more artists expanding and putting out their own content on these platforms. Wu-Tang for 25 years has toured the world. They have performed it. I can't even count how many countries. So it was very clear we made the doc. They have a global fan base. I mean, working with Nas, working with Shadow, Run the Jewels, all these artists. Like, I can see the Spotify streams on the back end. You can see the division, the split of the listenership. And it's insane when you look at some of the data. Like, wow, in Bulgaria, this many people are listening to DJ Shadow right now, or this many people are listening in like Ecuador. Hip hop has permeated every aspect of global youth culture. And it's the connective tissue, it's the language. So that's amazing. I'd always hoped that this would happen, but now to see it and travel the world and to see how deeply rooted it is in these places and how much it means and how it's sort of morphed, like with our business in India, just seeing how they've taken their own version of hip hop. So that's exciting, just as a fan of hip hop, just to see, right, see the right. impact of it. Yeah, and this shift has been relevant for Mass Appeal as well since the time you had revived it because even in 2013, of course, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, the magazine had its reach, but there was still a pretty strong New York centricity to it, right? And I guess some of that even carries a bit now with Nas and the leadership there. But you all have made the expansions like Mass Appeal in India. How has that been from a strategic perspective of knowing that, yes, you want to be able to extend this brand, not just throughout the U.S., but throughout the rest of the world and making sure that it can ride the wave of hip hop as well. The whole, you know, North Star, as you would say, of the business is the 50th anniversary of hip hop. We're about to be making, I don't know when this podcast will hit, but we're going to make a pretty significant announcement sometime this summer about what we're planning for the 50th anniversary of hip hop, which for people that don't know is in 2023, it was kind of a heavily disputed date when hip hop was officially born you know, in the last decade, I think the community kind of rallied around August 11th, 1973, and this block party that happened at the Sedgwick Housing Projects. Right. So, honestly, we did this program from Google called the Hip Hop Doodle. You know, people haven't seen Google. It's a really cool, interactive kind of history of hip hop. We did it for the 44th anniversary because Lior was, you know, just in his post at YouTube and really wanted to make a statement. And we got incredible support from Google and it kind of opened up our relationship with Google, to be honest. But when we did it, it was so random because it was, you know, it's the 44th anniversary. And that's not normally an anniversary that gets celebrated. But immediately, Sasha and myself, we started thinking like, oh, wow, in six years is 50 years of hip hop because nobody was thinking about that. So we've been working on building out this multi-year strategy leading up to this moment. But the biggest thing we realized is we can't celebrate 50 years of hip hop if we're just celebrating in America. We need to be celebrating hip hop globally. So 
we started thinking about where was the best place to open up Massapeel's first international outpost, knowing that we want to open up multiple between now and 2023. And Africa, as perfect as it seems, is so, I don't want to say oversaturated because you can never oversaturate a market like Africa. There's just the more money that goes there, the more opportunity, the better. But there's a lot of people that have a head start. Asia, you know, 88 Rising, there's a bunch of companies that are on the ground doing really cool stuff. Latin America, reggaeton is just owning everything that's happening in that part of the world. And then we started thinking about India. Fortunately, we got connected with this artist, Divine. Nas got looped in to become the producer on this movie called Gully Boy, which is kind of like the eight mile of India about a divine story and this gully rap scene. And before you knew it, like an idea manifested and we did a joint venture with Universal and we launched Mass Appeal India. And now we have a fully fledged baby version of Mass Appeal in Mumbai where you know, we have the record label. Pre-COVID, we had a couple brand deals that were very close to closing for us to produce content for a bunch of the same brands that are operating in America, but have a big focus in India. That got delayed. Hopefully that'll pick back up. But yeah, the goal is to become the preeminent voice for hip hop and really give infrastructure to these artists who, you know, I mean, India, I was there in February. It's a whole different world in terms of how little has been built, especially in the music community. So much of what India is known for is Bollywood. Everything is film music. You know, 90 plus percent of the market is film music. Bollywood makes a film, they put a big single, they make a soundtrack, they do it again, 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 again. So now to see this burgeoning music business, forget the genre, it's kind of happening with pop and hip hop and dance that is non-film, it's just incredibly exciting. So we look at India as kind of the untapped frontier. We're really lucky to be in business with Divine and Gully Gang and a bunch of other artists, Raj and Kumari, because they're kind of like the biggest artists in that region. We hope in three years, five years, there can be, you know, a hundred artists in India who are really making noise, similar to how there's a hundred artists in America or way more than that at this point who are making noise and have real businesses. So it's a long-term play, but it's an exciting one. We're learning a lot and emerging markets are just amazing place to put your energy if you have the bandwidth because the upside and the impact you can have if you're committed, like it's not a, like I said, a short-term play. If it's, if you're looking at the five-year-plus kind of model, there's a lot that you can do. Yeah, it's an exciting time, especially there in India. I'm interested. I know you're still in the early stages, but what does it look like from a business model perspective, and how it's different than what Mass Appeal US is, at least from the record label perspective, because. The streaming services there, everyone's trying to get a foothold, but both the native streaming services and the Western ones coming in, everyone is selling their subscriptions for much lower than they would be here. So that, I think, often changes how artists are making money. But then also, as you mentioned, there's the whole movie industry as well and how that factors into the music that's then sold. So how does Mass Appeal India's business model look different and compare to Mass Appeal US? So yes, the price to have a Spotify subscription, the, the data, I mean, India has the cheapest data in the world. It's the number one country for YouTube. So, so much of what gets consumed is on YouTube where people are just streaming it for free. It's not even fractions of pennies and it's fractions of fractions of fractions of rupees. It's a very tough model. It's a per play model right now. It's not the similar type of big pot of money comes in and 
you know, they kind of distribute it based on consumption and it doesn't work like the U S it doesn't really work like any markets at the moment, you know, a stream in India is worth about 20% of what a stream in America is currently or any developed country for that matter, you know, whether you're looking at Italy or America or Japan. So you need to do five times the streams to make up the Delta. The good thing about India is there's obviously a huge population there and there's a lot of people who are in the kind of age demo that, you know, are adopting streaming are in a place where they have enough money to pay for these services. And much like I assume will happen in America, over time, the prices will change. The business model will become a little bit more aggressive. Right now, it's just about getting people to adopt. I'm going to pay whatever the amount is per month to actually have music from a specific service instead of streaming it off YouTube or pirating it. So it's really now about behavior. And if in three years, the paid economy in India starts to flip, that's when the really exciting moments will start to happen. Because when people are paying you know, a dollar a month for Spotify or whatever there, you know, it's hard to make money. Deals are obviously cheaper because the cost of living is way cheaper. But, you know, when you're still dealing with artists like Divine and Raja, like these are superstar acts and basically the largest country in the world next to China. You know, in five years, India will take over as the most popular country in the world. So they still demand real fees and they deserve it. But, you know, you just got to hope that the business model will catch up in the next three to five years. And everybody at Universal, everybody who's been doing the forecasting and modeling, there's a tipping point where they've seen another emerging markets and they're using that as an example to sort of build out the India approach. There's a point where it will tip and people will be like, okay, my subscription service just went up by $2 a month. And like, that's really insignificant. But when you think about having 400 million people on a streaming service in one country and the price goes up, you know, a dollar, two, three dollars a month, that really doesn't mean very much to the middle class who has enough money to afford that. But what it means in terms of revenue is significant. I mean, India right now is the 16th or 15th. I forget what the, the IFPI report had it this year. I think it was 15th largest market in the world, but it's the second largest in terms of population in the world. So it's 13 places behind where it should be based on population. So there's a lot of room for the market to mature and catch up, but yeah, right now there's not a lot of money to be made. It's very hard to make money. You know, if we build yeah, a brand yeah. and we build the credibility and we build partnerships with all the most established artists, then over time, you know, we hope the business will change in our favor. Yeah, it's definitely a game of scale and it's a game of adoption. And as you mentioned, the behavior piece too, because in some ways I know the dollar amounts are different than they are in the Western world, but the mentality really isn't that much different, right? You think about whether it's the streaming services or even more broadly, all these consumer tech companies, everything starts really cheap. You get the behavior, you get the market share through that, and then slowly over time, the prices start to increase. I mean, I even look at something like Netflix. People may not have even realized it, but the price essentially doubled in what the past decade plus or so it used to be $7 a month, and now it's what, 12 to 14? I actually don't know what it is. And the fact that I don't know the exact price says something. It's, it's, it's the same thing. I have so many subscriptions and I do it because I like to consume a lot of content, but I have Apple, I have Netflix, I have type, you know, I, I feel the responsibility of somebody in the business to a, see what all these platforms are doing from a promotion standpoint for the artists we work with to make sure we're getting representation and getting support and all the key platforms. But the amount of money, when you think about the cable bundle versus, you know, having seven Netflix, Showtime, 
you know, this Amazon prime, whatever, whatever, it definitely adds up. I don't know what these things will cost in a decade from now, but they're definitely going to be more expensive than they currently cost. And when you think about the scale of these platforms, having hundreds of millions of subs in some cases, if they raise the subscription price, you know, a dollar, $2 a month, which isn't really anything to any of us, billions of extra revenue per year. So to me, that's exciting just as somebody who makes content because all these platforms are sort of, they have a model. We make this much and we reinvest this much into marketing, which helps our agency. And then we invest this much into original content, which helps our content arm. And obviously when content's being made, more music needs to be licensed. So we look at the boom in subscription and all these businesses is kind of having, you know, a trickle down effect to all of the sectors of mass appeal in a, you know, a really long-term beneficial way. And it actually brings us full circle because in some ways it's the same game that so much of the venture-backed companies have been doing for the past decade, right? How do you maximize the long-term value, customer acquisition cost calculations to the T and ignoring revenue or ignoring profitability might be a stretch, but that's essentially what a lot of them have done. And I do think that not just for you, but any company that's looking to expand in the emerging markets a similar type of mentality has to be held because you're banking on this as a long-term investment, not just in these customers, but in the broader landscape. Yeah, that's what it's all about. If you think you're going to go into any emerging market and get rich in a year, you're going to have a rude awakening in a year from now because it doesn't happen like that unless you're doing some black market shady shit that uh, (laughs) is a totally different industry. (laughs) Right, right, right. Shifting gears, we're getting to the tail end of this. Question for you. I know you've worked with Jay Electronica in the past, and I think you've been on the record saying that you didn't think that debut album would ever be coming. But the debut album came, and it came right as the world completely changed forever. What's your thoughts on the fact that Jay Electronica actually ended up dropping an album? Oh, man, you had to bring up Jay Electronica. Jay, I love you, first of all. No, I did not think the album was going to come out because I have been privileged to spend an exorbitant amount of time with Jay Electronica, including a stint of, of, of living together for a short while in New York in a New York summer or during a New York summer. But um, I'm very happy the album came out because his music is needed now more than ever. And it's an amazing album. It lived up to expectations. I was with him a few weeks before the album came out and he was showing me the track listing and all kinds of ideas. And even at that point, because I had only seen that process happen maybe four or five times in the past 10 years, even at that point, it felt the most real I'd ever seen it, but it still didn't feel real. And I used that moment to kind of tease Jay in a loving brotherly way and just say, Hey man, this is great, but the album's not coming out in two weeks. Let's just be honest with each other, man. Like, yeah, you can tell me you got Jay-Z doing this and you've got this producer and it's all great, but man, come on, let's be honest. There's no album coming out. So I was glad that he proved me wrong. And I hope there's another J electronic album. Do not make us wait another 10 years. It took me the most insane amount of convincing, begging, pleading to get him to drop exhibit C, which is still undeniably one of the greatest records in rap history. And I'm very proud that that's a record that mass appeal was part of. And I was part of we still have that record as part of our catalog, and it's just an incredible song that I listen to all the time. But yeah, kudos, Jay. You proved me wrong, and I'm very proud for it and happy for you. Yeah, no, it was a great album, and I never would have expected it myself. I never would have expected him and Jay-Z to essentially put out a joint album, but 
it was dope. I think it was a good moment for hip hop. And yeah, I still think it's ironic that it dropped the week that the world changed forever. But, you know, things have a funny way of working out. Peter, this was great, man. I appreciate you taking the time to chat. It's been great for the audience to learn a little bit more with some of the more specific new developments and also what you've been doing with or what you have planned to do with Hip Hop's 50th anniversary. But before we let you go, is there anything else that you want to plug or let the Trapital audience know about? Some of the things I can speak on that I'm incredibly excited about. First is a project that we've been working on with DMX. So we shot a film with him, basically shot it in the course of just a year. It's kind of a non-traditional documentary in terms of how it looks at his life. It's really a lot of present day, you know, cuts back to historical, but isn't, you know, it's really more like a character portrait. And that is going to come out later this year. It's supposed to premiere at the prestigious Tribeca Film Festival, but this horrible thing that has ruined the world called COVID came and that delayed, obviously, everybody's plans, but our plans for the movie. So... More information on that, hopefully, in the next month or two. On the film side, again, we have another project that we're doing, another doc. It's called The Invaders. It's about the civil rights activists from Memphis who are named The Invaders. A story that I didn't really know very much about. An editor, we were working on another project, and he turned Sasha and myself onto this film that he'd been doing on the side. We fell in love with the story very quickly, helped him put together some finishing funds, helped with you know just various aspects to get the film over the line. We added Yo Gotti as a producer to kind of connect the Memphis heritage. Nas came on as executive producer. And together, the two of them are making this incredible soundtrack, which will be a mixture of Yo Gotti's team, our team. It'll be some revolutionary conscious music, some street music. And hopefully that soundtrack will help put a big spotlight on this documentary. You know, sometimes these really incredible films don't get the attention they deserve. So we use music a lot of the times as a way to shine a light on these projects. On the label side, the one positive thing, I guess if there's anything positive out of this fucking pandemic has been artists haven't been running around, they haven't been touring as much, so a lot of music got created. So we have a bunch of projects that are going to be dropping in India with the artists there, and then clearly, of course, in America with all the artists here, Nas is finishing something. Yeah, those are the things I can speak on. There's a ton more that is in development. As I mentioned, the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. We're working on something pretty significant that we hope to announce soon. But yeah, just follow us across all of our socials. We put everything live the minute we can on those channels. That's good to hear. Now, definitely we'll bookmark that and make sure that I keep that on the radar as well. But yeah, overall, man, I love what you're doing with the newsletter and the podcast. I look forward to more good stuff from Trapital. Hopefully we can keep talking, come back on the show in the future and keep telling you about everything we have planned at Mass Appeal. No, we definitely should. And um, hopefully when the world resumes, when I'm in New York, we got to catch up. Oh, come on, man. I can't wait. There's so many people that I just cannot wait to be able to like go have a drink or a meal. I love the restaurant industry. So can't wait to go back out and eat at some of my favorite spots and just see a bunch of people that I love and miss. So I think everybody's looking forward to that. Hopefully soon moment where we can all kind of rejoice and get back together. Definitely. Thanks again, Peter. This is great. We'll talk soon. Definitely. Yeah. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell at least one friend about this podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow. Go to Apple Podcasts, go to iTunes, leave a review, rate the podcast. I will screenshot and share the podcast ratings on Twitter and Instagram. That can encourage more people to share the podcast. And if this podcast is your first introduction to Trapital, then make sure you check out the rest of the content. Go to Trapital.co. That's T-R-A-P-I. 
www.ital.co. Sign up for the weekly newsletter, get all the content there. And also, shoot me a text. That's also a great way to stay in touch with Trapola content. You can text me, Dan Runcie, at 415-234-3074. Thanks again. See you next week.